welcome to the Soccer Coach Weekly Podcast with me, Steph Weber. Thank you for joining us as we get insights and ideas from coaches working across the game to help you develop into the coach you want to be. This episode, I'm joined by James Wagenschutz, an applied sports scientist and sports performance coach. James has been in soccer for almost 25 years and holds a USSF A license. He's used it to coach the college game and to coach his daughter's under fives team. James is currently a coach educator for both United Soccer Coaches and the US Soccer Federation and runs his own consultancy, working with MLS soccer players and Olympians. I caught up with James at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Philadelphia to chat about how both players and coaches learn and develop. James, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. First challenge for you, tell us who you are in under a minute if you can. My name is James Wagenschutz. I'm in just outside of Boulder, Colorado, and I've been coaching soccer for close to 25 years, and I've been really fortunate to have a lot of different experiences working with recreational youth players all the way to MLS players. Um, and primarily for the last 15 of those 25 have been kind of in sport performance or sports science and supporting coaches and teams and the development of their players within their own game model. And that's led me to multiple opportunities to uh, create coach education platforms and integrate them with United Soccer Coaches. And then uh, I've been teaching courses for U.S. Soccer as a coach educator for almost 10 years now. Nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> what is your definition of coaching? What does coaching mean to you? Definition of coaching. I think that's a fascinating question because I, I also equate parenting to coaching, that we coach our kids. Uh, you may not think it, it's parenting our kids, but we're coaching our kids. The definition of a coach is really somebody who helps guide and facilitates somebody else's learning. And that's in the very essence of, I think, what a coach does, is guide and facilitate. And you said then... You've worked with your daughter's team. Is she still under five? So? No, not at this stage. Yeah, so she's seven, but I was. Uh, she was a recreation player, local city league. You know, volunteer practice twice a week, game on a Saturday for 40 minutes. And uh, yeah, I was out there volunteering, running around with the girls. It was a lot of fun. So what did, I suppose after so many years in the game, what did you learn from that experience and going to coach a daughter's team on a volunteer basis? It's a great question. What I love about working with the young young kids is that they are the mirrors. They immediately show us what we're doing and they listen in different ways that we never thought imaginable. So if, if I'm saying something like dribble the ball with your laces and toe down, you know, some of them can't even do that and some of them can, but you know, where? and how hard and how fast. And so some of them need uh, specific instructions and some want free. So being really clear with the, with the setup and the structure of what we want to coach is massively important. And are those lessons that you've then taken back into your coaching with all the players or with other players and it's made you reflect in that way? Oh, of course. I mean, everything is applicable in, in the sense that I, as the coach, go from one environment to the other. So the environments are different. But I myself, wherever I go, if you believe in the old school philosophy. And so because of that, we get 
I get information from players and they give me immediate feedback that I can then process and reflect that carry over into other environments. And so a great example is if I'm not clear with a five or six year old, how am I going to be clear with an adult who's already got fairly developed conscious brain? So I suppose that takes us on then to, well, we're talking about player education, coach education. Why is that such a passion of yours and, and so important to you? What I've come to realize about myself is I love learning how humans behave. So if I need to go back and reread sociology books, <laughs> um, but I'm really interested in behavior change and, and in what kind of what interventions and at what time frame in someone's development can something stick, right? And so, the, you know, there's a couple of uh, brothers, Heath brothers that wrote a book about made to stick when it comes to marketing. And I think there's application toward coaching and, and using cues to help players things stick so that maybe they can apply it for the rest of their lives in any domain, quite frankly, with soccer is, is, is the predominant one. But if it can also be applicable to uh, when they become a parent or when they get a job as a banker or something like that, that something sticks with them memorably, positively, uh, then, then I see as my job is, is moving the needle for them positively. Mm-hmm. I suppose tell us then what some of those really important things are that you think soccer players should be learning. It's like picking up on the word should, right? So like, oh, we should dribble with our laces or we should pass with the inside of our foot. Like for me, I, I was there once early on in my career and, and now it's, it's not about should or must or always or don't because those are like kind of bipolar words. They're, they're opposites. And that implies that if I don't do it, then I'm, I'm awful and I suck and I'm not good. And so we have to meet players where they're at, find ways to reinforce the positivity of what they're doing and while mistakes happen, letting them go or reframing the mistake or an opportunity to learn in a way in which they can apply themselves harder. Does that start then with making sure we're creating a safe space and environment for players to be able to, to do that and to make mistakes? Absolutely. And it's the same with coaches and coach education. We have to create a safe space for them to feel like they can speak up and challenge and dialogue with the content, the philosophy, the curriculum the way it's being presented. And so it's it's more than just coming in and saying, here's the content that we're going to teach A to B. It's multi-pronged approach to creating a safe space. And you might define safe as one thing, and I might define safe as another thing. So we need to start with the most basic question is, how do you define this safe space? What do you want this journey to look like? How do you want to be coached? How do you think I can help you? What do you know about yourself that is going to cause a ripple effect positively or negatively during this course or during our time together. Meaning if something triggers in your brain that's going, oh, now I can't I've shut down. Do you know those triggers about yourself? And is anybody asking you those questions? And are you asking those questions of yourself? To then say, I, I'm in a safe space to be able to think openly about taking on new information and applying it. So those are questions you would ask explicitly at the start of working with kind of a, the coach and educating them? Yeah. Yeah, and I, there's there's a lot of benefits of having kind of a, basically like before you come to a course, like a pre-course, fill out, tell me a little bit about yourself. At the same time, we are providing the structure in which they tell themselves about us, which almost confines perhaps their ability to speak freely. 
So as humans, our brains are designed to protect our bodies. Everything is about protection, survival. So we're always going to sense our environment and choose the path of least resistance because it's about protection. So if I create a structured document that looks intimidating, that's so much to fill out, the language is too hard, uh, I might struggle to fill it out. So how do we, that's, the, that's been, to me anyways, that's part of the art of interacting with these coaches at the beginning is, what do I need to give you and what can you give me to help each other down this journey? But most importantly, I'm here to serve the coach. And so they need to know that I'm there to help them and guide them, not to critique them or judge them. And let them know at the same time, there's assessments, there are standards, and we're trying to move them toward those standards and competencies. So what are some of the common challenges, I suppose, you see coaches coming with and things they need to work on and things they need support with? Freeing up their schedule. I think in part because coaches help and guide and facilitate, we're eager to do more than we can actually do. So we take on more. And when we take on more, we can't, we cloud our brain with more to do. So we actually need to free up space in our brains. And the reflection, meditation, walking, exercise, no phone, no electronics, we can go on and on. And coaches also need to learn the ability to say no. Do you think we've got a culture that says the more you work, the, the better you are in coaching? And does that need to be challenged? Ooh, loaded question. Does it need to be challenged? No, I'll break it up into two parts, which is I can only speak about the culture that I perhaps work in. I may not be able to speak about the culture of coaches in, let's say, uh, Seattle or Boston, Massachusetts or Chile or Argentina. What I can speak about, though, is sometimes there's a model of how we were raised and how we were coached is how we end up coaching or how we end up coaching our players. And depending upon when you were born, there might have been something related to the culture of when you were born about working hard. So folks that are baby boomers, industrial age, you know, coming through this, I want to, I want a particular house lifestyle. That means I need to work harder, longer to get those things because I'm maybe not, I maybe don't have those resources. So if we look at player demographics, and I can speak on the male side, generally speaking, the majority of male players that make it professionally are the ones who outwork other players. It really does come down to effort and grit, um, and also a little bit of luck along the way. Maybe somebody picks them up, talent, talent ID or something like that. Um, and so that gets reinforced then, perhaps, if they decide to become a coach. Well, I know that if I put in an extra 10 hours, and I know that if I just keep working longer, and if I check my phone late at night, then I'm going to be more productive. And productive means better. Not always. And so is it, does it need to be challenged? I would offer that the coaches that are clearer with themselves can create clearer environments for their players, a safer environment, and a really structured manner in which they can help develop the players logically. Being clear, is that clarity about who you are as a coach, why you coach, what you want your coaching to look like? Is, is that it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, understanding a little bit more about your purpose as a coach. Why do you coach? I mean, it ought to be the, like the number one question, right? Why do you coach? Okay. What does that give you as a coach? Does it what kind of feedback emotionally uh, do you get from coaching? Okay, how does that serve you in your life? And so I think that there's uh, the clarity piece. Most of us will never get to the 
absolute answer. It would be amazing to wake up to me. I know who I am and I know my purpose in life. And there are people like that and they're the stories that sell, right? They're the ones that sell all the books. But the reality is, is most of us are not in that space. And so most of us are still on that journey, but we never take the time to truly really identify, ah, that is, those are my three greatest strengths. Why don't I apply those 80% of the time? Because I know that'll be more productive than trying to work on all my weaknesses. I suppose that's a question for players as well. Sometimes I feel like we're obsessed with let's improve players in this area, improve players in this area. Actually, their strength is dribbling. That might be the thing that that takes them forward. Do we need to think about that in the context of players too? Absolutely, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, no one's going to take the ball away from Lionel Messi to say you can't dribble anymore because that's it's arguably one of the greatest things he can do besides seeing the feel and making pictures in his brain and making things available to his brain way in advance of everybody else so that you have to be able to put players like him and, and others who can dribble in positions to, yeah, absolutely thrive. And when do we notice that, right? And that's the question is, does it happen at 5, 6, 7? Does it happen at 12, at 14? And uh, Those are the complex questions that we as coaches ask ourselves all over the world all the time. And do we expose to your... To when does it happen? Are we meant to be open to it happening at any time? Actually, and letting players develop how they develop. I believe in that. I don't believe in just total free reign, but I do believe in free play or unstructured play as part of that development. I do think that if, if a player and a family, if we're talking about a youth player, sign up to go into a particular environment, they ought to know what the kind of the rules of engagement are of that environment. And we have to allow for more autonomy especially within the game, more autonomous decision-making so that players can perceive and make decisions within the game. And so, yeah, somebody might get the light bulb at six years old and it stays with, or they might get the light bulb at 18 when the 24-year-old just cracked them. On autonomy, is that something we need to allow more for with coaches as well? As in, you know, you might have this license, you might have this, your director of coaching might give you this structure to work to, but actually, you need to put your spin on it. You need to understand who you are, who you are as coach and how you deliver to that. Yeah, there's, and I'm not well, well-versed in autonomy supportive coaching, but there's really good research and good ideas behind it. And it's starting to pop up and it's starting to kind of infuse the conversations. And it's, it's somewhere where I'm headed, like learning more about autonomy supportive coaching. And I think uh, all of us would do, would benefit from having that opportunity to learn more about it. Uh, but I would, I, would, I would piggyback that and say, if we can allow people to be who they are and accept them for who they are and not judge them along their coaching journey, it may free up the coaches from trying more things and feeling free to experiment. As long as it's obviously, like we talked about, a safe environment and there's, there's a logical progression that it doesn't look like you know, paint by numbers all over the place. But within the structure, there's, there's freedom. And I want to come back. You said earlier when we were talking about why you coach, what emotions does this coaching give you? I have to admit, when I started coaching, I was surprised by the number of emotions that it actually gave me and that, you know, everything that coaching encompasses that you don't realize until you're kind of thrown into it. Do you get a lot of coaches that don't necessarily realize how, how emotional it might be and how it might affect them in that way? We are conscious beings that are driven by emotions and make emotional or rational decisions. I mean, 
think about the last time you bought a clothes or last time you got a dessert. I mean, they're probably illogical choices, but they feel good and in the moment. And I, we judge ourselves too much to say, oh, that was the right choice or wrong choice. No, it just, it was the choice. It was in that moment, that's what I did. Part of our game is it's up to the players to solve in the game. And we don't have control over that. So what do we do as coaches? We try to control everything else. And by doing that, that creates an emotional response. If I can't control what you say or do, I have to let go of that. Well, that's hard in a space of protection because my job, my ego, my friends, my family, my money or income is based upon my ability to do X, Y, and Z. And you said you're going to hire me as a coach to develop players to move on to the next level as an example. Are parents and players holding those coaches accountable the same to do what they do? And, and most of the time, they're not, unless something reckless happens. And in part because coaches are so emotionally driven by their own ego. And the ego should never be gone. Like, let me be really clear. Like, the ego is a part of us. It's, it's recognizing that maybe the voice of the ego shouldn't be as loud right now. So... We are emotional beings. We make emotional decisions. Where's the time and place for connection with players to leverage your talents of emotions to improve the player? And how does everything we've spoken about, I think, sit within the fact that soccer is such a commercial entity and there are so many commercial pressures yeah, how does that marry up with emotional intelligence, autonomy, and all of the concepts we've spoken about? Yeah, I'm not, I would say I'm not a, a complete expert. And I, I'm really just starting to get into this field of recognizing fear and emotion and the psychology of the commercialization and the pressures. I mean, there's no doubt the players at the, at the tip of the spear, at the highest end, are under pressure all the time when they leave their house, not just soccer, but any sport, when they leave their house, people are watching. What are they doing all the time? And many of them probably fear that they can't be themselves. And so they guard against it. And that can manifest through injury. It can manifest through trauma. It can manifest through, well, I'm just going to rip the next guy's shin off because I want to win the tackle and I'm going to do whatever I can to protect my job. And it's, it's ruthless at the top. And it's okay, it's okay to be ruthless. Not reckless, but ruth, like meaning ruthless, I want to win, right? The guys at the tip of the spear want to win. And they're, some of them are driven by fear and anxiety that we never see. And they hold it on the inside and then it bursts out emotionally, either on the field or through their play or whatever. And I think the more you just come to surrender and accept, that's a natural part of the environment you're going to be in the better off you might be. So I'm going to ask you some quicker fire questions in a bit, but I suppose something that's resonated with me from what you said is about being kinder to ourselves, I think, and not, you know, when you're talking about we, we go home, we think, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. It's just a choice we made in the moment. So for coaches listening to this, what would you say to them if they want to start being a bit kinder to themselves? My family, every night, when we're able to have dinner together, when we're to, we hold hands and we say, I love my family. And then we go around and do our gratefuls. And our gratefuls are basically a blessings. They're not rooted in any kind of religion, but it's related 
it's rooted in a practice of being grateful every day. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be with you, Steph. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be alive and to be in the soccer coaching. Start with some really basic concepts of being grateful. And I think the more we're grateful and kind to others, because we're open to them, the more we can be kind to ourselves. And it goes against the research, which is four out of five thoughts are negative. Uh, and so it's a, it's an uphill challenge for most people. And I'm not perfect in any way. And I continue to strive and grow and learn more about myself. Right, the errors of my ways. The grateful bit every day with my family allows me to just relax and listen and be very present with what's happening. And it also honors things that, like, I had a little win today. I had a little win today. This win today was... Whatever it might be, like, I got inside right before it started raining. That sounds so simple, but now it's a good win. Oh, it was a good win. I connected with a friend I hadn't seen in a year. That was an awesome win. And so you, you start racking up your own wins throughout the day. And if you write them down, uh, then it stays longer in our brains. And then we start to realize, man, I just had 150 wins today. I didn't really lose anything. Awesome, right. Let me ask you these. I say quick fire. They may be slower fire. We'll see. Okay. Drawing your coaching experience. So (laughs) say you've got a brand new coach. They're going to take their first ever training session tomorrow. What advice would you give them? Did you say they're going to take it or tape it? Take it. Take it. Okay. (laughs) I work with a lot of coaches who are taping themselves and they have to film (laughs) themselves. Um, Smile. Connect with the players. They are... Whether they are pros, college, or youth, they're somebody's child. Connect with every player and smile. Awesome, thank you. Uh, I suppose you touched on this a bit before, but you've got a volunteer, a part-time coach, incredibly pushed for time, but really wants to deliver for their players. How can they make more space to do that? They have to ask themselves why they're there in the first place, and that hopefully was already clarified and set up with regarding you know, the original agreement. The second thing is, is clear about expectations from the head coach to that part-time or volunteer about what I expect out of it. And that if they want to do more than those expectations, that may be fine. Let's talk about a way for them to do it. But right now we're only working on this clarity of structure. The third part I would say is the eager coaches who want to go to the next level, the next job, the next pay raise, whatever it might be, be really good and I mean really good at one or two things initially while listening to everything and absorbing everything but not trying to do everything that's the temptation right but the journey's longer than we realize I think of course of course yeah and I I was guilty of it I wanted to do everything and prove myself to the head coach I was working with the reality was is I recognized I had a strength that I could leverage and get really good at it while listening and absorbing what's what's processing, but maybe saying, you know what? Six months from now, I'm going to tackle that. Okay, our third and final coach is stuck in a rut, feel like they're delivering the same sessions, not sure if it's getting results, feel like they're falling out of love with the game. How do they re-engage with it? There's so many angles to take with this question. I don't know that I can do rapid fire because uh, there's so many contextual things that might be influencing that burnout age, experience, etc. Take a break. It's okay. Yeah, maybe go on a sabbatical for a month, two months, or a semester. 
Second thing is have somebody watch and see if you still are on the sharp end. Like, oh, yeah, somebody's watching me. Like, not from a judgment standpoint, but like a friend. Hey, you, know, you set up the arrangement so they come out and give you feedback and noticing the effect of the players. Great. Look, thank you so much for joining us, James. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. That was the voice of James Wagonshoots. Thanks to James for his time. And thanks to you for listening to the Soccer Coach Weekly podcast. For more from us, join us again next time or visit soccercoachweekly.net for practice plans, advice, interviews and much more. I'm Seth Ferber. See you again soon.